All right, so hi, and welcome to another episode of Talking Stocks. I'm your host, Todd Campbell, founder of Limelight Alpha. And today I'm excited to be joined by Jonah Lupton. Jonah's got a long history of investing that stretches back into the 2000s. He's an entrepreneur. He's one of the most followed people in the FinTwit community. Jonah, I think you had about 470,000 followers last time I looked. Hopefully you'll have a few more after today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Jonah and I were having a great conversation on Twitter the other day, and I couldn't help but think, hey, this would make for a great podcast. Um, I'm all about, you know, trying to shorten everyone's learning curve. And one of the things I want to do on these podcasts is invite people like Jonah on to kind of share with us the things that they've learned um, to hopefully shorten all of our learning curves and, and make us better, smarter, more successful investors. And, you know, Jonah, um, I, you know, I know when you and I were talking a little bit before the show, we are talking a little about our shared history and how, you know, you kind of got excited or interested in stocks, maybe at an early age by taking your, your father's Wall Street Journal and punching symbols into, a, into his uh, machine. Yep. So my dad's been in the business, I think, since the 70s. Um, sounds right, because I think he's now past 40 years. So uh, growing up, I used to go to his office. He was with, oh, God, uh, Prudential Beach, I think it used to be called, and then Dean Witter and a few different variations along the way. And then I went off to college originally as a pre-med major and then transferred schools and got into finance and economics. And then after I graduated college, I went to work for the big Wall Street firms such as Morgan Stanley and Smith Barney. Did that for about a decade, uh, burned out essentially after the financial crisis. I mean, for anyone that managed money for clients through that crisis, which was you know, approximately 2008 through 2010, it wasn't anything like what we just saw in March, where March was straight down and straight back up, you know, for a lot of our stocks, the financial crisis was just this two and a half year grinding lower debt markets, you know, uh, or debt credit and equity. There was nowhere to hide. It, it was just, it was brutal. Uh, it's like, uh, I think you said it was a grind. Man. It, it was. was. It was brutal. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I worry a little bit about is, you know, for younger investors, maybe those who got into the market after 2010, just not really having that perspective and you know it's helping them right now right to an extent because you know they they haven't been bitten um and, and had to endure something like that and i always said if i ever got back into the business i would do a long short fund uh because in that great financial crisis <laughs> i think the only way you made money is when you were shorting stuff um or you you know you're buying credit default swaps but you know then of course after we got through that we basically had a, a 10-year bull market where everything went up so those long short funds, I don't know, some of them probably haven't done so well. Oh, I imagine, I imagine probably not. And, you know, I think one of the things that I was really fascinated to chat with you today about, I think, you know, a lot of people probably want to hear a little bit about it is, you know, I'm a rules-based guy. I'm a systematic guy. I think that, you know, I've learned myself that emotion can really negatively influence my investment decisions. So I try and, you know, follow a very systematic approach to picking my stocks and everything but I know that everybody has their own style and their own approach. I think it's very helpful to listen to other people and hear about how they go about picking winning stocks. And one of the things I was hoping you might be able to share with us today is, I mean, you've got some great stocks. You share them on FinTwit, uh, stocks that you've got in your portfolio, obviously, you know, 
things like fast they've been very successful i'm just curious how you go about like what's your process when you're when you're interested in looking for a new stock how do you go about doing it so i mean i i use a variety of screens i mean i wouldn't say i have one specific process in terms of finding stocks um you know, certainly fintwit has given me a couple ideas over the past year I think we all watch CNBC at times. I think I've only found one stock ever uh, through CNBC. It was actually Lavongo. So I remember see, I remember either in March or April, the CEO of Lavongo was on CNBC. Uh, I forget if it was during the day or if it was after hours with Kramer, but uh, that's the first time I looked at the company. But otherwise, I mean, you're not gonna find most of your great ideas on CNBC. So then it's just a lot of reading, researching, doing stock screens. Uh, I try to typically stay with the the mid cap stocks. I try not to go after the the mega cap stocks. Um, I mean, I, I think there's there's time. Is that for liquidity that. reasons, John? Uh, yeah, I mean, so I, and this is where my strategy kind of bounces all over the place. I mean, sometimes I I say I'm looking for stocks that I think can appreciate by 50% or more over the next six months. Sometimes I say I'm looking for 10 baggers over the next three years. I mean, for me personally, I'm trying to maximize my returns for the short term. I am not necessarily focused on buying stocks that I think, uh, you know, and holding them for five or 10 years. That's just, I don't have that sort of patience. That's just not my, in my DNA. So I am thinking shorter term. Um, I'm not a day trader. I'm not a swing trader. I'm not trying to buy stocks now and, and you know, for some sort of a, some short term catalyst. Uh, I actually did that last month with Peloton. I felt like they were going to crush earnings. So I did start building a position right before they reported and they reported. And I remember the stock ran up to about $99 pre-market. And if I had been more disciplined, I would have sold it at 99 and, and banked a nice profit. Instead, I held on, waited till the market opened, thinking I could maybe sell it in the hundreds. And of course it tanked. And then a couple of days later, it's back in the low eighties. So then I had to add to my position and, you know, make it a core holding. And I'm glad I did because it's had a nice run uh, from the low 80s up into the, you know, 119 or 120, I think, where it got to today. Um, yeah, so you're not, you're not really a, you're not a day trader. You're not a buy and holder necessarily. You're more of a position or opportunistic investor yeah. where you'll look at positions. You, you may not even decide, hey, I'm going to own it for two weeks. I'm going to own it for a month. I'm going to own it for five months, whatever. And it doesn't sound like you set a, a particular target in mind. You know, I, don't, I know that sometimes with day traders, successful day traders I've talked to, they go, once they get their hundred bucks or whatever per trade, they're out. Right, um, right. And I know other position traders, they'll look at it and they'll say, okay, well, if I get X percentage of return or extended to the 200 day or whatever, uh, I'm going to be out or whatever. But it sounds like your, your approach is to, um, to go out there and just find an opportunistic name, buy it, and then we'll get to talk about sell discipline in a, hit, in a minute, but I, I kind of want to focus on the buy side of things a little bit more. Like, what is it, what is it that, like, if you were going to define your ideal, Peloton sounds like it was kind of a one-off for you. You don't normally try and, and get involved in that. But if you're going to just describe your ideal stock, the characteristics it would have, I mean, what would it be? It's, it sounds like you said mid-cap is kind of a sweet spot for you. Yeah, I mean, five to 50 billion, even probably closer to five to 20 billion uh, with a couple 30s and a couple 40s in there. But uh, I, I try to stay under 10 billion because I think those are the stocks that have the most upside over the next 12, 24 months. 
I mean, I do say I'm a thematic investor, so I do have 15 or 20 different kind of themes or industry sectors that I'm looking at, whether it's cloud computing, cybersecurity, alternative energy, uh, e-commerce, of course, digital payments, online gaming. And then I try to comb through those sectors and, you know, find the one or two stocks that I believe are going to give the best, uh, you know, have the most upside or outperform over the next six to 12 months. Yeah, so you're looking, you're looking at industries, high growth industries, and you're saying to yourself, okay, I'm gonna, first I'm gonna start up here. Um, well, actually, here's a good question. I mean, do you care where the market is? Do you watch um, the market like up? Do you wanna see an uptrend before, or, or no. like if it's a... So the way that I, so the way I approach my portfolio is I am always 100% invested. So depending on how I feel about the market, doesn't matter in terms of my 100% my long. And then what I do is this is where I use margin. So this is where, you know, I'm willing to take on the risk and, and go up to uh, 50% margin based on my overall feelings about the market, as well as my feelings about my individual holdings and which ones I, I have the most um, conviction in, I suppose, over the next three to six months. So if I'm willing to go on margin, I, that's where I'm thinking shorter term with that portion of my portfolio. So let's just say my portfolio is $100,000. Um, I'm willing to go up to at least borrow $50,000 from my broker and sometimes borrow $100,000 from my broker. Um, Depending on your conviction. Correct. And that's what I did. So, and this is where I, I need to learn probably better risk management, although this year it paid off a little bit. So when Fastly, uh, Fastly and Lavonga were two of my biggest positions, and they sold off in early August for different reasons. Fastly was because the market, you know, thought maybe they would do 80% rev growth, and they came in at 62%. And then they announced that 12% of the revenues came from TikTok, so the stock sold off 30%. And then Lavongo, which crushed their earnings number, got hammered with the merger with Teladoc, right? Because then that changed the whole story. So you had a lot of investors that you know, just too many unknowns, sell, sell now, ask questions later, that, that mentality. So, you know, because I still had a ton of conviction in both of those stocks over the next three to six months, I sold off the bottom two thirds of my portfolio and leveraged up with Fastly and Livongo on margin, uh, pretty much as high as I could go. My broker would allow me to go. And then as those stocks rebounded, then I started to trim them. And then in early September, when, you know, so, I, so later into August, you know, those stocks have started rebounding. I was trimming them down, adding new names to my portfolio, trying to, you know, get back to 10 to 15 names. And then, of course, in early September, we got another big sell-off in growth. And this, almost the exact same thing happened. You know, the big growth stocks were down 20, 25%. I pulled out that same playbook from early August and sold off the, you know, a lot of the stocks that I had just added in late August that I had less conviction in sold them back off, you know, leveraged back up with Fazley, Lavongo, C, Tesla, and a couple other names, and then rode those up through September. And as they bounced higher, I started to trim them down. I mean, at one point in early September, I think Fazley was 75% of my portfolio, and now it's back down to 12%. So yeah, no problem with concentrating your risk. No. One of the things that you, I mean, if you have... Which I couldn't do if I was running, you know, if I was managing money for institutions. There's no way I could ever take that sort of concentration risk. But 
since it's my own portfolio, I was willing to do it. Right, and it sounds like you had maybe built up a portfolio of, that maybe included some starter positions and less high conviction names. Yeah. So you had this portfolio that was, you know, correct me, but say eight to 15 stocks. And then as you saw these opportunities in the market where maybe the market sold off, you felt, we were, hey, listen, they're gonna come back, they come back the leaders. I gotta make sure I have as much money as possible in my highest conviction ideas. So let's get out of these low conviction ideas and, you know, Dub, double up, if you will, on my on my so, high conviction. So what I do to help me through those times is I have a spreadsheet of all my holdings and I have six month and 12 month price targets on the upside and the downside, and then a percentage of how likely I think the stock is to hit those targets. So for instance, Fastly, um, and I do this after they report their earnings. So after Q2 earnings, I go in and I adjust all my price targets. I'll do the same thing after Q3 earnings when we get numbers. But for instance, for Fastly, I mean, my price target was 140. That was my 12 month price target after they reported Q2 earnings was 140. So, you know, based on what my price target for Fastly was versus all my other stocks, that was the, that was the stock that I had the most conviction in. So I was willing to put, you know, move all my chips in the middle of the table and triple down, quadruple down on Fastly you know, thankfully it paid off. I mean, so Trump yeah, let's, let's dig into that, flesh that out a little bit more for me, Jonah, if you could. I mean, that the you've got your, your spreadsheet, you've got the stocks that you like in it. Every time they report earnings, you're updating your model. I'm assuming that you're you're probably putting some kind of a multiple to some, some you're somehow maybe you're annualizing the earnings, then you're putting a multiple. Maybe it was their trailing multiple against the forward projection. So my rough, so. I mean, this is just me. I've never heard anyone else really say this before, so take it or leave it. But for me personally, my guideline when I'm, you know, when we're talking a high growth cloud software stock, you know, when you get into e-commerce and you're talking GMVs, I mean, things are a little bit different, but like, since most of my portfolio is cloud software and they're all trading at multiples in this, you know, similar range, most of them are not profitable in the first few years, um, you know, obviously some of them kind of you know i think year three four as a public company is when you hope that they get there some earlier but so i'm willing to pay as a multiple i'm willing to pay half of the growth rate over the next six quarters gotcha so if, gotcha. I think so if they're growing 60 percent, you're willing to pay 30 times sales correct. yeah that's where i think i can keep myself out of trouble you know if there's some multiple con contraction because there's a rotation in the value or the markets are selling off or whatever the case might be it leaves me a little room for error. You know, when I see some stocks right now, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if I should name drop, but Coupa. Yeah, Bill name drop, name drop. Yeah, so Coupa, Bill.com. I mean, I'm not an expert in those companies because I haven't done any hardcore analysis because I have no interest of, in buying them right now when their multiple is higher than their growth rate. I mean, they're trading, in some cases, these stocks are growing at 25% and trading at 30 times sales. I mean, that's, there's no room for error. I cannot justify that. That's fascinating. That's really interesting. That's a, it's a really cool approach. And like you said, I don't know if I, I can't recall someone saying, hey, this is the way I look at it. But it makes total, I totally get it. I totally get why you do that. And it sounds like to me, Joe, the thing that you're really focusing on when you, I, I think of like machines that percolate or that funnel ideas down and we have thousands of stocks we can pick from, right? So right. many stocks, right? So, but we got to get them down to an actual number that we can actually digest. And then of the ones that we get, we whittle it down to, we can only take so many of them. 
into our portfolio. So, I mean, I, it sounds to me, you don't care necessarily about earnings because you're willing to embra embrace uh, emerging companies that are, are it, and it sounds to me like one of the screens you do possibly to find new ideas is just simply a revenue growth screen. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'll touch a stock under 30% rev growth, but I think there's enough stocks that are out there growing at 40, 50, 60% um, where I would rather own those, you know, the really high growth companies that are really disrupting in industries. You know, of course you want to see some, some gross margin expansion because uh, without that, I mean, it's that much harder to get to profitability. And I mean, profitability still matters. I mean, some of these companies are going public at large valuations and, you know, raising 300, 500, even a billion dollars at the IPO. So, you know, they can afford to lose money for a couple more years without, without having to issue more stock. But you don't want, you know, you don't want to see those stock offerings that start diluting the shareholders, which is one reason that I'm a little scared of SPACs, you know, because what SPACs are doing, I mean, sometimes they're taking in these pipe investments, but a lot of times, I mean, DraftKings has done it, Space, uh, uh, not Spurgeon, uh, Galactic mm -hmm. did it. You know, as soon as the stock starts to move higher, you see that stock offering, and then the stock gets crushed by 15, 20%. So, um, yeah, that's one of the reasons I always kind of look at people, people are really hot on these IPOs and everything. I'm like, well, you know, historically speaking, um, unless you're able to get into the IPO price, which means you either have a really big account with Fidelity or something. <laughs> Huge account, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to get it. So you're going to have to trade in the first couple of days. And, you know, the lockup expiration has made it so that really the, the, it's been better to wait the six to 10 months. Obviously, that hasn't been our recent experience. Right. But historically, the smart money kind of stays on the sideline for a few quarters, build up a little reputation, get some following, see the puts and takes of it, and then go out after the lockup expires and, and, and then pick up shares. Yeah, um, I agree. I mean, there's very few stocks that don't come close to retesting their IPO price in the first six months. Um, I mean, even snow. So, you know, Snowflake was obviously hot. I mean, it came out at, well, I mean, they, I think they priced it at 120, you know, after raising it a couple of times, opened at 240, got to 300, dipped back down, you know, a few days later to 208. And for me, I was, I was waiting for 180. So, you know, if they're growing at 130% this year, you know, I, I saw estimates somewhere around 100% next year, you know, average that out at, let's just say 120 over six quarters, I was willing to pay 60 times sale, which is insane, but I was willing to do it to get a premier name like that in my portfolio. But at 60 times sales, it just, it didn't, you know, we may never see it under 200. Um, but if we do, then Jonah, it sounds like that's a name that you would you would certainly be looking for. So I mean, maybe yeah. you have the spreadsheet going. You're adding names that there are target names. Yep. So uh, and if the, if it happens to come down into your strike zone, you'll you'll give a swing at it. But you're not gonna you're not gonna just press for the sake of pressing. There's so, right so many now, ideas out there. You can just focus on these other ones instead. Yeah. I mean, right now I'm at 20 stocks. I mean, I've been as low as two stocks this year. So. You know, that was a little abnormal. I, I can't imagine a scenario where I would get back down to two stocks. Um, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, it let's, was just- yeah, Let's talk about that for a second, you know, Jonah, because I mean, you know, I think a lot of people think if you, you're 100% invested, you tend to, to want to be 100% invested. There will be times, however, that you'll bring yourself down and have less exposure. Yep. I guess that's a great way for us to pivot the conversation. Now we talked a little bit about how you go after and, and find some stocks and things you concentrate and your targets and all that. 
let's talk about you know when you decide to, to pull the trigger on either reducing exposure or cutting bait on a name or you know so so even yesterday so so since two-thirds of my portfolio is generally buy and hold you know with my favorite 20 names with you know anywhere from two to 20 names and then the other third is trading in order to keep myself disciplined i have to so the whole you know the sell the sell the rips and buy the dips like to me that's how you manage being on margin and if you don't stick to that discipline you're asking for trouble which is what happened in early september you know after the the tech markets rallied through the summer you know everything from fang all the way down through cloud um i was undisciplined and i had too much margin so you know i was just too long in my portfolio going into that sell-off in august or early september I got hammered. I mean, I was down, I think a week into September, I was down 26 or 28% for my highs in just eight or nine trading days. So that was stupid. I can't let that happen again. That was my fault. You know, learn from your mistakes. It's been a crazy year, but you know, it was still, I mean, I did not stick to my discipline. So, so even yesterday, as much as I love, you know, Fastly and C and Tesla, the Tesla, I didn't trim yesterday, but Etsy, Roku, Peloton, I mean, pretty much every single one of them hit an, uh, an all-time high yesterday. I trimmed all of them, you know, because I'm on margin. I'm 40 or 50% long in my portfolio. And if you're not going to trade, you're not going to trim your stocks when you're on margin as they're hitting all-time highs, you know, it's you're, you're just being reckless. So, you know. I, I love that, Jonah. I love that. I'm so glad you said that because I think that that is one of the, probably one of the pr premier mistakes that maybe some of these younger people are making right now is they give themselves really leveraged up and they just extrapolate the fact that stock's going up and it's going to go to the moon. Well, you didn't realize too. The margin cuts both ways. Right. I mean, you're thinking to yourself, okay, if I trim 5% of my portfolio, you know, and it goes up, they all go up again tomorrow, I, how much money did I just leave on the table? So you keep telling yourself, okay, one more day, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll squeak out some more gains tomorrow, and then I'll start trimming the next day. Yeah. You keep telling yourself that over and over, and then one day, boom, you get nailed, and you're like, oh shit, okay, I'm five percent off my highs. I don't want to, I don't want to sell now. I don't want to trim now. I want to wait till I get back to my all-time highs, and then boom, oh. you're down five percent again the next day. Yeah. So, like that's what I mean. I that's happened twice this year to me. Um, the one in September was was the bad one. Uh, and I don't want to make that mistake again. So, you know, I think having more positions for me is that's certainly safer. I mean, that's one way to manage your risk is have more positions. So typically I start a position at 2%, yeah. but it also depends on how much cash I have, you know, how much trimming I've been doing, um, you know, my, my conviction on those new names that I'm looking to add. So I've been trying to, so, you know, Roku, Fastly, all of them I've been trimming the last couple of days. And then I've been adding a few more names to the portfolio, some smaller names that have been on my watch list that, you know, have been pulling back as the market's been moving up. So I feel like they've been building a nice little base. So on a, you know, from a technical standpoint, they look more attractive now than they did, you know, over the last two months. Um, and then, it's, you know, the, still, it, those are within my themes. Like, so Cryoport is one that I just added, CYRX. Yeah. So they're, you know, refrigerated, uh, cold storage, shipping, logistics. Uh, if they're one of the companies that are shipping hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines over the next six or 12 months, uh, you know, they should triple or even quadruple their revenues, which is what the 
the consensus estimates are looking at. So right, and then based on your like your your back of the napkin math, you'd be saying, well, if I think that they can triple their revenue, then maybe I'm willing to pay fifty percent, fifty times sales, or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're. I think they're going to lose forty or forty-five million this year, and somewhere between you know like four or five different estimates out there, anywhere from you know one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty million next year. So. I mean, some analysts are looking for insane growth and it's, it's a small position. You know, it's not a name I have a ton of conviction in. I don't know that company as well as I know Fastly or some other ones. So, you know, I think it's a 2% position in my portfolio. So I think it's trading around 50 bucks. So what I typically, you know, I go in with like a one and a half percent position at 50 bucks and then I'll give it a couple of days. And if it pulls back to, you know, maybe I put in some limit orders at 4950, 4850, uh, especially because, you know, like you know, I mean, I was just at the gym uh, a couple hours ago. So I'm not always in front of my computer all day long. Right. So sometimes if I'm, you know, if I'm jumping on a conference call or going to the gym or whatever, I'll put in limit orders for most of my, my positions, at least the ones I'm looking to add to. So, you know, if, if well, I was just going to say limit orders, I think for, for the buy side, limit orders makes sense. I have less success in the past using them for sell. I think they just come down and knock you out. Yeah. Um, so I tend not to put any sales in there. I, I think you're, you're, I agree with you. I could just go back to the sell discipline part of it. You know, I think that you're right, especially if you're in margin. I, I, oh, I've been burned too many times with margin. Oh, oh, I know. oh, oh, four, oh, eight, you know, whatever. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I try to avoid it. And I, I, when I, I go to cash, when I, when I get nervous about the market, you know, what's interesting is when you've been around a while, like you and I have been around, we kind of get the sixth sense of when markets are getting overheated. Um, but, but you can also have, there can also be some data inputs that, that kind of like make you go, oh, you know what? Yeah, this is overheated. And this is where I'm going to sell this rep. You know, you said sell the reps by the depths. I mean, and, usually, I mean, yesterday I started to get nervous because yesterday was such a green day on really no news except maybe we're gonna get some stimulus um, or maybe we won't have a contested election. And it was just, I mean, you can tell on FinTwit when there's that euphoria, everyone's green, everyone's hitting new all-time highs, everyone looks looks and feels like a genius, you know, like they can't lose money in this market. That's usually when things are kind of getting frothy. So uh, I just wanna make sure that I'm selling into that euphoria, that I'm not getting swept up in it and you know carrying too much margin into the next sell-off because we'll get another sell-off i mean i don't know if it's going to be tomorrow next week after the election i mean we're we're, we're due for another five or ten percent correction but i want to make sure that we get it I'm, I'm not you know i don't have too much margin that i have some ability to then leverage up after the sell-off is over yeah and i agree I and mean, i think what a lot of people don't realize is that with margin they think okay well you know Am I really going to get a margin call? But remember, margin requirements can change. They, they've been changing too. Uh, yeah, right. So, so the, I mean, the broker wants to get their money back. That's their right. That's their, they want that more than they want the interest on the margin. Um, so, so last week I got forced into selling off some Fastly after hours that I didn't even know about. So I'm not even sure why they picked Fastly, but uh, <laughs> I remember seeing a couple notifications from my broker saying that they were reducing margin each week by, by a smaller and smaller amount uh, heading into the election because they were expecting more volatility. And then I'm at the gym and I get an email notification that my broker just sold some of my Fastly after hours. And then of course Fastly was up 10% the next day and then 20% the next week. So, I mean, I don't know if it was just because it was my biggest position, but what was strange is 
it's not only my biggest position, but it's also my, my largest unrealized capital gain position. Yeah. So not only did they sell fastly my favorite stock, but they also created a tax consequence when you would think they would want to sell my stocks that have a loss. So yeah, no, yeah, you're right though. Cause I remember back in the day, you know, uh, it was probably 10, 15 years ago. Anyways, I remember that yeah, happened so to me too. I'm like, why are you selling my winner? Right. So why it's, it's not like they're going to, they're not going to send you a notification saying, Hey, could you take care of this in the next couple of days? Like yeah. they're just going to sell, they're going to go into your account and they're going to sell some of your stuff. Right. And then you're, <laughs> and then you're out of the name that you want. Now we have some depth where, okay. Yeah. Okay. They, they sold some off. I'm still exposed to it. You know, it sounds like Fastly's still a really big holding for you. Yeah, It's 12% still. Yeah. But. So I mean, that's, that's a huge allocation regardless, although you will go as high as 75%. You said that if you really love something. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hope I don't have to do that again. I mean, because, and I, I wouldn't have to most likely because I mean Fastly's run so far so fast. Um, you know, I still think it could be 140, 150 dollars stock sometime next year, but I mean it would have to pull back in a meaningful way for me to want to sell everything else and triple down again on Fastly. Uh, that's awesome. Jonah, that was fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time here to at least give people a little bit of inside baseball and you know ideas for hey, these are the things I look for when I'm looking to try and find new stocks. These are some of the things you want to keep in mind as you're, as you're thinking about risk control. And I think, those, I think that's something that people really need to focus on, especially since we've had such a rip-roaring market. They have to start thinking about, you know, how am I going to make sure that I can continue to play the game? Um, There's you know, too many, I mean, today on CNBC, they showed uh, the four largest kind of DIY platforms, you know, Robinhood, E-Trade, Ameritrade, and Schwab. That's like 50 or 60 million accounts right now. And I think, you know, something like half of them have been opened up in the last year or 50. I mean, it's crazy how many have been opened up in the last year since all these platforms have gone to, you know, zero dollar trades or free commissions, even though we know that it's not really free. I mean, those those platforms are still making money somehow because they're, you know, scraping some pennies off of the bid and the ask probably. But um, I mean, there's a lot of people out there right now that are doing this themselves. Um, I don't know if they just don't trust the mutual funds or the mutual funds have kind of underperformed or, you know, they're just, you know, like why pay a, why pay a mutual fund manager, you know, 150 basis points a year if they're only going to beat the benchmark by, you know, 2%. Um, I mean, so. That's a good question to ask. And I think that, you know, obviously 401ks and 403bs you right. don't have the right. opportunity to commit individual stocks. So I think for most investors that are wor working age and, you know, investors in the middle of their career or whatever, probably 80% of their wealth is probably going to be in their 401k or 403b oh, yeah. mutual funds. And then maybe they're taking 20%, 15, 20% and they're, they're playing on the side, if you will, in some of the individual stock names. It does get me nervous. I, mean, I always call it paying tuition, right, Jonah? Like it's like, you know, okay, you start out, I suppose it's good, right? If you're starting, if you happen to be younger, I mean, you're not going to lose, if you lose everything, it's you know, right. like you're 50 right. maybe, losing everything. Yeah. Maybe you're losing $2,000. Yeah. So it's tuition and you're learning, you're learning that the market giveth and the market taketh away. Um, I think one of the biggest takeaways that I'm having from our conversation right now is this kind of theory of, of you know, going to the opposite side of the boat that everybody else is on. <laughs> so, so if it's tilting really heavily one way, go the other way. And if it's yeah, tilting I, really then go the other way. So I mean, I mean if, if you get a big sell off, like you saw in March, you know, and, and everybody's panicking and running on the streets. Okay, great. Commit some of the cash that you raised in January. And you know, the other thing that I would probably add to that is that, you know, you don't need to be perfect in your timing. Right. Right. 
Um, you, I mean, you know, I, you're not going to get the bottom, you're not going to get the top, but if you can get the 80% of that move. I mean, I feel like, cause maybe I was exposed to the industry for so long that I feel like I have the, the opposite, you know, mentality of the typical retail investor, which is sell when everything looks really bad and then buy when everything looks really good, which is typically not how you make money. I mean, for me, like I hate buying stocks at all time highs. I hate buying stocks on, you know, big up days. I, I love buying stocks when there's, you know, blood in the streets and my screen's all red. Like to me, that's when you find the best bargains. I mean, assuming that you believe that these stocks are going to come back and history shows that they always do if you're willing to be patient. So yeah, if you pick the right, if you pick the stock, right, right. if you get the stock, right, I mean, it, you know, I always get a little nervous when people say, hey, buy and hold, buy and hold. Well, buy and hold, but you also have to buy and hold the right names. And you have to realize that some of those names, you know, there's survivorship bias, right? right. So, I mean, some of those names, you know, like if you bought Cisco in 99. You're flat. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've gone sideways for 20 years. IBM, you know, General Electric. I mean, these stocks have gone nowhere for two decades. Yeah. And to your point, though, I mean, I think that if you can build yourself some form of model where you're looking and saying, well, I'm only willing to pay X amount of of sales growth. So that maybe would have gotten you out of a Cisco or an IBM as they came slow growers from high fast growers. Right. right. And, and that's why I say I'm not a traditional buy and hold guy because I'm always doing the analysis, you know, fundamental. I'm not really a big technician guy, but like I'm always watching my stocks, listening to the conference calls, you know, reading any press releases, you know, trying to figure out who the competition is, what are they doing different or better. Um, and if things start to change, I will sell my stock. Like I'm not, I don't be, I don't want to get married to any of my stocks. So I don't have that, that thinking where I'm buying a stock now and I'm not going to touch it for the next 10 years. Cause a lot of things can change over the next 10 years. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying to maximize my performance over, you know, the next three or six months. And if I just keep doing that over and over, you know, I'll end up with some good returns at the end of the year. That's fantastic. I think that's a great place to, to put a pin in it for the day. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today, Jonah. I think it was a lot of fun. Hopefully our listeners learned at least one or two little things they can use. Um, Jonah, uh, again, appreciate your coming on to talk with us. And, you know, listeners, if you're not already following on Twitter, please do that. And Jonah, what's your Twitter handle? That's my name, Jonah Lupton. Jonah Lupton, you heard it here. Make sure you follow him. There's good content there. Thanks, Thanks again, Todd. John. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Bye-bye.